Hey, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott and I spent the first series of this podcast laying out the basic toolkit that we think is essential to making conscious evolution a possibility, which is the entire premise behind the whole Accidental Gods project. This podcast, the website, and the membership portal that arises from it. Since then, we've been exploring the extraordinary, living, inspiring intersection where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality. From where we can craft a vision of a future that is generative for us all, for the human and the more than human worlds. My guest this week is someone who gives me real hope that the world can heal. I first met Rob Shorter at Schumacher when we were studying for the Masters in Regenerative Economics. I met him again on the streets of London during the Extinction Rebellion October Action in 2019, where he was one of the leading songmasters, keeping our morale up during what was effectively a rout early in the first week before we established at Trafalgar Square. His singing is unmatched. And then Rob went on to scoop what is probably the best job in the whole heterodox economic firmament. He's working with Kate Rayworth, author of Donut Economics, one of the greatest minds in our current economic thinking. Rob and Kate and the team have created the Donut Economics Action Lab, working specifically to create models of the donut economic world that will work at a city scale, at a town scale, at a village scale. And the Donut Economics Action Lab, which spells D-E-A-L, that's deal, is the focus of this podcast. We recorded early in September 2020, and the lab opened on the 23rd. So we're releasing this for first transmission on the 30th, so that if you're interested, you can head over to the deal website and find out all about it. And finally, as I said, Rob is an astonishing musician and songmaster. He sent me some of his work, and by the magic of Caro's sound engineering, you are about to hear it. So, people of the podcast, please welcome Rob Shorter. We shall be known by the company we keep, by the ones who circle around to tend these fires. We shall be known by the ones who sow and reap the seeds to change a life from deep within the earth. It is time now, it is time now that we thrive. It is time we lead ourselves into the well. It is time now. And what a time to be alive In this great turning we shall learn To lead in love In this great turning we shall learn To lead in love So Rob Shorter, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast on this very wet and windy morning. I hope it's not too bad where you are. It's extremely stormy over here, so we may end up having rain lashing against the window as a background noise, for which I apologise to everyone in advance. But welcome, and today we want to talk about economics 
donut economics in particular, what it is, how it works, how we can make it work. But before we get into that, I would really like to explore a little bit of how you got into it and how you became the person that Kate Rayworth found to help her make city economics a reality. Thank you, Amanda. I'm wonderful to be here. Um, from a bizarrely sunny Oxford, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> maybe, <laughs> not, maybe not within 10 minutes, who knows? Um, so yes, that's a really great question. Uh, how did I get into donut economics and why Why me? I, I, I very much ask that question um, still now. So my interest in donut economics uh, started when I began exploring um, the world of uh, new economics and alternatives to our current mainstream system. I was very lucky to be able to take time out to study a master's in economics for transition at Schumacher College two years ago. And from the outset of that, I was aware of the uh, donut as a model and was a great fan of Kate's book. And when looking at it, I was I was very inspired by the vision of how we can move to a place in which people and planet are thriving in balance, see the, the safe and just space that the donut model mm. depicts. But my question was, well, how do we move there? What what are the are there any signposts that say, well, here's the sort of business model you need to pick up, or here's the way you organize within a community. And I I carried that question. And over the course of the the year, uh, I was fortunate to meet Rob Hopkins who was at the time writing a book on uh, imagination and uh, the power of, of, of the imagination and illustrated through so many wonderful stories he had collected, um, building on his time in transition, but also uh, more explicitly looking at so what is the imagination, why why are we suffering uh, in this time? In in in, mm. in why is the imagination suffering in a time we need it uh, more than ever? Yeah. And so I saw these stories. I saw I was inspired by these stories. I, as everyone is, I do love watching the reaction of people when they hear his stories. Um, mm. People come alive, and I was thinking, well, there's something common in a, a lot of these stories he t- spoke about. Um, in common about the way people were were um, working together to meet various uh, needs within uh, certain places, very specific contexts, that that uh, there was a quality that I was wondering, is there a way to, to sort of share these, to, to tap into to what it is that could be some signposts towards uh, a donut economy, uh, a way in which we might really intentionally and skillfully build our collective imagination, give agency to everyone to be able to uh, build the collective imagination so that we might move towards this space we've never been in, right? So there's no country in the Mm -hmm. world that is within the donut today. Can you tell us the the basic principle of the donut, the meeting the needs? Absolutely, yes. So the donut is uh, gets its name from the shape, which think of two concentric rings like a, a donut with a hole in the middle. The inner ring is the social foundation, which depicts the needs that uh, all people need uh, to live a good life. They're the needs that everyone has a right to around the world. And when we fall short on these, we're falling short on life's essentials and we fall into the middle of the donut, the hole in the middle. Yeah. 
Beyond that, we actually go into the space of the donut. But it's not just a case of meeting everyone's needs. We actually recognize that we are living on a wonderful, thriving uh, planet uh, of life-giving, life-supporting systems all around us. And so what the outer ring depicts is the what's known as the ecological ceiling. It depicts nine planetary boundaries that come from Earth system science. Uh, the the people who are who are working tirelessly to to be able to uh, understand um, the, the 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 key life cycles uh, of the planet and measure them. And with these nine planetary boundaries, we recognize the moment at which we are going beyond Earth's carrying capacity for humanity. So what we say with the donut is, yes, we need to meet the needs of all people, but we need to do so within the means of the living planet. And that is the space within the donut, which is the safe and just space for humanity. Brilliant. And we will put an image of the donut on the website, on on the podcast page on the website, so that people can go and have a look at what the the inner boundaries and the outer boundaries are to make sense of it because it's much easier to see i think than to to explain (laughs) whether describing it gets anywhere near but the the power one of the great things about the donut it is so visual it is it's it's a compelling simple uh visual there's something quite deep about um it's circular circularity um, and it, it really does uh, yeah. appeal to people who don't know anything about economics, which is one of my favorite things about it, because it's sort of, it's it's more inviting than any of the equations or graphs you might get in Econ 101. <laughs> this is a great starting point. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's very alive. I think it's it's simple, it's clear, it makes sense. And as you say, something about the the circular nature of it is, I think, very compelling Exactly, for people who don't spend their lives mm. thinking that economics is all about numbers, mm. when it isn't. Economics is about people and how we interact with each other. So as I understand it, you wrote your dissertation for the Masters on the the area of how do we get to, how do we get the narrative to the place of the living planet is that right so the yes uh, the the dissertation was was an exploration very close to the research of rob hopkins the jumping off point was was asking this question what are the conditions that cultivate the collective imagination towards the donut wow. and my values very much lie in the role that everybody plays in the in a just uh, transition yep. and how we are all called to bring our uh, our gifts and our views and our lived experience uh, and our aspirations to uh, this collective imagining. And I I was um, fascinated when I when I did a, a project prior to my dissertation at the youth climate marches. And <laughs> I took um I took a banner and lots of A5 cards. And the big banner said, "What if." And it was very much building on the work of, of Rob's book, From what is, uh, what is to What If. And it was inviting young people to imagine a future and, and ask their own what-if questions, which then I, I, they would write on these bits of card and, and I'd post up on, on, the, on the banner. And so their words were, were adorning this, this large banner and um, speaking volumes. It was Some of the things they came up with were, were fantastic. But what I was noticing that there was real difference in, in certain and people's ability to imagine. And that began me on this trail of, of, of understanding that um, we, we can't just necessarily just switch on this 
some people refer to as the muscle of imagination. You know, there are things that inhibit us from imagining, and there are things that really cultivate uh, imagining. Right. And and there are dynamics between us as individuals and us as as when we gather together. So that's uh, really then kicked off this this exploration. And I'm so interested in this. I'd, I'd like to take a little bit of time down this rabbit hole because this is, as I'm sure you know, one of the questions that absolutely obsessed me when I was at Schumacher is what? It, how can we create a change in the cultural narrative, which is, I can think, a way of saying something quite similar, but you've been more precise because you were looking specifically at the donut and you were looking specifically at the collective imagination turning towards that. So what conditions did you find did cultivate the collective imagination towards the donut? Well, there are many. And I wouldn't say that I've come anywhere near to, um, I would say, the full wonder, unknowing wonder of what the imagination is. I, I feel uh, my work is, is, is gesturing towards um, what we might need. And it is certainly um, proving to be helpful to some people. But what I, what I found was that there are some, some key areas um, such. So if I describe those uh, in turn, yes, the first is um, space. Um, the imagine the imagination um, needs mental and emotional space, and the more that we can expand our a sense of mental and emotional space, the more we open uh, space for imagination to come through. And uh, and how do we do that? How do we do that? Is is a great question. I think we you can look at it from the things in our in modernity that inhibit space. We live busy, rushed lives with there's stresses and strains and trauma that keep us um, striving for, uh, I guess, distraction. And mm -hmm. a lot of these things um, close down um, our sense of, of, of space. Um, there's definitely elements of privilege in space and recognizing that some people have uh, are in a privileged position of having more space in their lives naturally, where others are, are, are sort of striving from day to day to meet some um, some yes. of their needs. So what space does here is recognize that there are many elements. I mean, I could I could work through those, um, but sorry, I interrupted you. Did no, you no, no, I was interrupting you. Only that what occurred to me then is one of the things that Rob highlighted that seemed to me really structural in our society is that the public schools to which the privileged entirely are sent. So so 100% of the privileged go to public schools. Not everyone who goes to public schools is necessarily privileged because scholarships exist, but it's a, it's a pretty large set. And that public schools are disimagination machines. <laughs> so we have the people who have the space have had their imaginations actively inhibited from a very young age, mm. which strikes me as as one of the great ironies of our time. Because, as you said, the rest of us, you know, the, the people who didn't end up at Eton, are more likely to be constantly stressed in the sense that they're, they're not living in a space where they feel able to explore boundaries. Uh, on the podcast, we've explored polyvagal theory quite a lot. Mm. And I'm thinking that this is really quite interesting. I'm looking at a PhD in the face of, of looking at what are the triggers to non-resilience, the things around us that leave us feeling not resilient. 
mm. which is equivalent, I think, of saying not space. And then mm. how would we reverse those, which I'm guessing is, if I hadn't interrupted you, where you were going to. It's it's really funny you you, you raised the, the the word resilience. Um, I think it's a it's a fascinating word that maybe isn't fully differentiated between what individual resilience is and collective resilience is. Yes, and and I'm fascinated about this this idea that our um, current economic system um, pushes us towards being individually resilient. And I I almost view this as though imagine a tree standing alone in a desert. Yeah. You know that is a resilient tree. It is it is fending for itself. But would you say that tree is in a really good place? I'm not mm-hmm. sure. And then think of the resilience of a of, of the collective. And think of a tree within a thriving ecosystem of a forest. And that is a resilient tree because it has uh, this um, supportive uh, web of life around it. And so, yeah, I, I wonder how can we bring about more resilient economies where we are resilient um, yes. n- because of our neighbours, because of the people we work with, not despite of them, not because we're pitched up against. And I think some of the institutions um, that you name um, a lot of, in the privileged education system teach us to be uh, the individual resilient. Do you think they do? I'm not even sure that that's actual resilience. I think we could have a whole different podcast on this because I think this is the tree in the desert that that looks like it's okay until the situation mm. changes slightly and then it falls over. So I think mm. what what they are taught is how to thrive within a very, very narrow set of parameters. Mm. And I'm not sure that's what resilience truly is. I, I think if we look at these look at this psychology, look at the through the lens of somatic experiencing or or the people who are really interested in polyvagal theory and, and start to unpick to what extent does any of us feel safe in this environment. And mm. I think quite quickly, if you talk to people, there is no sense of individual safety or of collective safety. There's just a difference in our ability to fend off the unsafe. Mm. I think you've got a, a great point. And I wouldn't profess to, to knowing enough um, to, to to sort of wade in on, on that particular one. But just picking up on the word safety, that is, uh, within each of these um, core elements that I started describing of, of what the imagination might need uh, to, what, to, to cultivate it, and I, and I t- talk about the mental and emotional space, one of the key prerequisites to that is, is feeling safe. Okay. A feeling physically and emotionally safe and acknowledging acknowledging our, and honouring our fear and vulnerabilities. And, and with that is, in the collective sense, is feeling welcome, um, welcome to be ourselves, invited mm. to participate with warmth and sincerity. Now, these, are, these are some of the very initial things um, relating to, to space. And when thinking about donut economics and thinking about how we, the qualities we bring about when we gather – if we gather in a place that makes us feel welcome and a place where we feel safe, then then we can start talking. Yeah. You know, if you if you go to a space to start discussing a new economic paradigm and you don't feel those two things, then you're not going to get very far. Yeah. So space really talks about how we feel safe and how we feel welcome and then moves on to things like, well, how do we give ourselves permission, permission to get things wrong, permission to suspend that inner voice of judgment and cynicism. Yeah. And, and so it, it starts sort of building up some of these elements where we can start, we can actually start connecting with each other in a deeper way, start opening to alternative possibilities. 
and slow down to really begin to notice what new things might emerge rather than repeating old patterns. Yes. So space covers a lot of things, and those are just a simple articulation of, of some of those. Gosh, this is so interesting. And are you finding that there's an age difference in this? I'm thinking, I think quite specifically of having been invited onto the parish council in the village where I am, and I've been along to one meeting, and and I felt neither safe nor welcome, really, because I was coming mm. from a very different place, and I was, mm. I've been struggling to think how can I, how can I create a mutually safe and welcoming space, in in this particular forum, and mm. listening to you, I was imagining that your generation and those coming up have possibly got the language and the literacy of self-awareness and collective awareness more than the age that is of the ruling class and and upwards has that been your experience or am i simply generalizing too much mm. well my experience i would say is, is is still you know very limited and but what i would say is i've i've witnessed extraordinary spaces uh, of, of enormous vulnerability. And from those places come extraordinary growth and collective places where you, spaces where you feel anything's possible. Okay. And, but at the same time, I, I don't necessarily experience them, but I read about people, uh, young people who are, are dealing with levels of uh, stress and anxiety greater than any other generation before. Yes. And so there's a disconnect between those two things. And I feel maybe the, the role of those who might uh, be in the privileged position ha of, of, of having maybe been in those spaces that I've described before, welcoming and setting up uh, ways to welcome those who maybe have experienced uh, greater levels of stress and anxiety. Yes, yeah, so we need to create the generative spaces and let people find access to them. That's it. And yeah, the more we can open spaces of all different kinds, the better. Uh, and yeah. in, in the time of COVID, people are learning how to do that online. Yes. And I was reading things that people sometimes aren't feeling, are feeling too vulnerable to potentially even show their face on a camera. So techniques for how people can maybe start by pointing their camera at the ceiling yeah. and slowly move it down when they're yeah. ready. And acknowledging the some of the, the, the trauma and things that people are bringing to, to, to situations when we gather. Yes. So I wouldn't know necessarily whether the, how much there's a generational difference okay. there, but I do, I certainly sense that there's not a lot of challenge, at least um, still with, with helping people feel safe and welcome. Yes, but at least we're trying to address it. So let's mm. bring this, you wrote your dissertation, which I would really like to read. Um, <laughs> and then... And then you ended up with Kate, which, so when I was at college, Kate was one of our lecturers and, and it was, if I had to name one single inspiring day, it or three days, it was the days she came to talk and everything fell into place. So I'm assuming it kind of mm. felt like that for you. And then she opened up the Donut Economics Lab. I, That's and, right. And you got a yes. job there. <laughs> I did. I was so fortunate to be able to to join Kate on this this next chapter. If we cycle back to when Kate first came up with the the idea, she was working at Oxfam. It was 2012, and she came up with the the donut model. 
uh, as I described before. And in 2017, having had some time and space to uh, investigate uh, this idea more deeply, she wrote the book Donut Economics in 2017. And it really sparked off um, well, it's now in 17, uh, sorry, 18 languages around the world. It is, you know, um, bestseller lists internationally. It, it has really, and we, we, we spoke about how it's, it's a simple visual and it's really capturing the imagination of people in all different settings. And I think Kate recognized that it was right to then offer this growing community of people uh, coming to the idea of don't the ideas of don't economics to offer a space for them to connect and collaborate and turn the idea or the ideas into action and so that's what we're now doing with the donut economics action lab it's uh, uh the name is a lab and it, it is a bit of an experiment we it's not been done before and we're creating a an online collaborative platform for people who have come to the ideas to to um, connect, uh, uh, inspire each other towards action, um, towards the donut. And we're doing that in many different parts of, you could say, across the society. We uh, are focusing on on cities, you, you, you mentioned before. Really like to look into that in depth, yeah. But there are other angles too. So if you were to view cities at a, a scale where, where a local authority is potentially initiating the work, well, there are places all over the world where communities are initiating the work right. and so we've got a, so i'm very fortunate that i'm the community's lead and i'll be working with communities uh, and spotlighting where where um, action is is arising from b- between people who aren't necessarily uh, in a position of of traditional power okay so let's look at cities first and then let's come to communities <laughs> because that's sounds a very fertile area to explore but the the c40 did it arise out of this or was the C40 happening anyway? And can you explain what the C40 is? This is where I will happily say I don't fully know. Oh, okay. <laughs> there are so many things within Kate's work between 2017 and, and today that I still am not fully up to speed with. So I wouldn't be able to give you the, the exact definition of what the C40 is. Okay. But I do understand that it's a, a sort of a global network of cities which are, I believe, looking uh, towards reimagining what the, the city is for and bringing in the ideas of things like donor economics, and that Amsterdam is one of the, the C40s network. They will share ideas, and so I, I think that's, that's my best stab at what yes, the C40s network is. I will put a is. link in the show notes. It's because it was 40 cities to begin with. I suspect there are more now, and their, their kind of headline now, is yeah. they are taking bold yeah. climate action, leading the way towards a healthier and more sustainable future. And and the point is that they are, it was set up by mayors of progressive cities That's locked it. in slightly less than progressive nations, so quite a lot of them in the, in the States and in the UK. There are actually apparently now, I'm looking it up, 96 member cities with 700 right. million citizens and a quarter yeah. of the global economy, which is which is quite impressive. So between them, they, yes. they're going to have a lot of impact. And I think what's happening is they're talking to each other about what can be done at a city level in spite of the actions mm. of, of the overall federal or national Absolutely. governments. Um, and they're, they're a sponsor of and a partner in the Donut Economics Cities model, I gather. Yes, I hear that. I think that's that's really exciting. Mm. It's it's people taking action, taking agency where they, you know, they realize that there's yeah, there's, there's great potential to to work together. And 
we have, having launched the Amsterdam City Donut and seen how the other C40 city mayors have responded to it, it really reinforces our, our belief of how change happens in that change can come through uh, seeing people like yourself do things you didn't think was possible. And a mayor can be inspired by a mayor. And how does that then translate all the way across society? You know, a teacher being inspired by a teacher, a a neighbor being inspired by a neighbor. And what are the the other ways we can um, bring that thought into, into our work? Can you tell us a little bit more about what Amsterdam has done? Absolutely. So Amsterdam has been a uh, a city on on a on a journey towards a circular economy for the last five years, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely caveat that with with a fact check. One one of the people in my year, which is just a couple ahead of you at Schumacher, is is now working for them on circularity and how to be circular. It's so inspiring. And they they really mean it. That's the thing. It's not just greenwashing. This is, we are going to be fully circular. Mm. And it's it's their commitment at the city level to do that, which has given permission to change makers of the city of Amsterdam to grasp the model of the donut. And I I mentioned permission before in terms of the, the conditions that cultivate imagination. And I was sort of referring to permission at a... At just a, a, a gathering at a, a small scale when we when we gather together as individuals, but this is permission at a city scale. You know, you open you know the city of Amsterdam will open this space for the change makers to step in and imagine what is possible for this city, and they recognise that the um, the donut brings together both the social and ecological dimensions. This is before I joined the Donut Economics Action Lab, Kate and uh, Carlotta, the other co-founder of the Action Lab, worked with um, the city and with a consultancy called Circle Economy and with Changemakers, which is people from business and and other organizations, to formulate what a downscaled donut looks like for a city of Amsterdam. Right. Downscaled from a national level or from an international level? Downscaled from a global level. Yeah. So the, the the donut, as you, you may post on, on you mentioned the, the link, if you're looking at that, that is a, the global view of the donut. So it measures global impact of climate change, of ocean acidification, and all the other planetary boundaries, and the social measures such as the percentage of the population not meeting needs on things like um, health and education. Whereas the downscaled um, version is is recognizing what are the things that we find uh, most important to measure at a level of the city. So you might bring in more relevant social dimensions that are particular challenges in your city and you might bring in ecological measures that are more relevant and the ecological measures might be relating to the the local ecology looking next door at what is the the biome in which you are a part and and how much carbon does your local environment sequester how much uh you know what are the water, water nutrient cycles and things like that and then mirroring that within the city yes so you take what's right locally, but crucially, you also then look at what is your, how do you do that whilst respecting the needs of all people 
worldwide yeah. and within the means of the living planet. And so there are there have been clever ways pioneered in this methodology, looking at how Amsterdam is is linked in global supply chains. And therefore, when you buy something from a shop in Amsterdam, how is that impacting people in other parts of the world and, and similarly uh, impacting on the global boundaries? Yeah. And so what you end up with is you end up with a local and a global view of both social and ecological uh, dimensions and it's it's a it's a sort of a full balanced uh view uh, of what it means to be a donut city because yeah. you're meeting the needs of local people within a thriving local habitat whilst respecting the needs of people worldwide yeah. in a thriving planet and it's it's a very powerful starting point to to then undergo or transition towards um the, the space in the donut and how far down the line is Amsterdam now on this? Amsterdam has published the the portrait, as it's described, of what they chose, what the sort of measures they chose, and and um, the sort of the dimensions of those global, the local and the global, the social and the ecological, and, and and how they're doing on those, which is a really brave step yes. to 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 recognise. Yeah, we're 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 actually we're part of a lot of global problems here in the city because we you know we're a part of these this global supply chains and things like that uh, so they published that and they are now undergoing a, a sort of wider consultation uh, with the city uh, and with with um, working out what it means to bring this to life for citizens so that it then becomes something that citizens really own this vision mm. and then forging up the, the way forward so they bring it to life with mapping the initiatives currently underway you know what what's already going on that that is bridging um the gap towards thriving in the donut they're also looking at sort of policies that you know decisions they need to take on housing you know how do they take decisions on housing when they now recognize that it has impacts on on all of these uh all of these things of the public portrait yeah. and so they are now i guess pioneering the the next steps of turning turning the public portrait into action and informing action in all different parts of the the cities and development i'm assuming that amsterdam was quite a progressive city to begin with for it to even have started this how is it going down with the citizens of amsterdam have we had has anybody looked into kind of enthusiasm or uptake or engagement or any of the measures that we could look at to find out how is this spreading within the population? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know of anything that sort of captures it on a statistically representative basis. If you were to to find a, a representative sample of Amsterdamers and and maybe understand their awareness and uh, their enthusiasm for the model, I don't know if that's happened yet. But what I would say is that it is drawing a lot of people towards it, and the interest is very high. Yeah, and it would be hard. You can imagine if some if your city is going okay, we want to meet the needs of everybody in a way that embraces everybody and engages everybody, it would be quite hard to go, no, I don't want to be part of that. I mean, it's just, it's, you can't imagine that happening except on a on a really deeply ideological level. And I got the impression that there are a couple of other cities picking this up too, one of the Brazilian cities? Yes. Conversations are, uh, are bubbling up from over 500 places around the world, many, many cities wow. from global uh, north and south. And what we're so excited about is that, yes, it's been trialed or pioneered by a global north city, but there are so many cities in the global south looking to take this on and make it theirs. And it will be different. Mm. And uh, we're fascinated to see how that, that works. So I'm not a part of all of those conversations. Okay, but 500, five 
500 cities. Yeah. That's amazing. That's most of the C40. But it's actually a mixture. It, it is a lot of the C40, but it's a, a mixture of, of, of scales as well. So we actually sometimes get whole nations looking towards this. I and wondered. Costa Rica right. is, is, yep. is moving towards this. And, right. and, and Costa Rica are the closest, I think I can say this. I'm not 100% on it, but one of the closest to actually being in the donut at right. a national level. Right. And and it's I, I'm very excited about when Costa Rica yes. uh, publish and how many um, countries that will inspire. Yes. But I recognize that it's not necessarily the same individual or group of people who bring the idea into action, if you will. You know, it, you've got a complete mixture of all of the different societal stakeholders picking up this idea and saying, how are we going to do this? Up mm. and down, if you were to think about it as a, an old school hierarchy from resident uh, up through sort of, sort of local uh, organizers, through to sort of city councils, through to sort of more regional um, authorities and, and national level. If you've got people looking at this idea all the way up and down, it, it's great graspable mm. at all those scales. And I think it's very exciting that that um, certainly I have a lot of uh, friends in Brazil. They are part of reading clubs. They are part of um, groups talking with local authorities. They are recognizing the engagement with the model is, is, right. is coming from many angles, which is very exciting. Yes, because in Brazil, obviously, the national government is is probably not engaging with this, <laughs> uh, given its political structure. But, um, but if we can do it from the grassroots. So let's use that as a jumping off point because you're involved more in the local communities and a lot of people are going to be living in places where whatever the size of their local authority from parish council to town council to county council to city council in the UK and equivalent structures abroad, it's it's not coming from that level. So we want people to be able to work from the grassroots level and move something upwards to the point where the local authorities follow because it's so obvious and everybody wants them to do that. So I'm guessing this is where you're involved. Can you tell us a little bit about, first of all, how did you get into this? I know we looked a little bit at that, but you're stepping off point into this. And then where is it going? And really crucially, what can people do from here on in to help this happen in their local communities? Yeah, so, as I mentioned, I'm the community's lead, and I guess there's an element of defining, being in the current process, defining what that is, and we're we're really learning as we go on this, and and it's, it's very early days. We've we've heard from change makers in communities in many different contexts already applying these ideas in their their local communities but i think we're we're just at the start and the really exciting thing is that we've heard from as i mentioned over 500 places around the world about the city portrait that's what we've published but we've not yet launched anything and it really invited forward communities yeah so i think when we launch in the end of September, that's going to be the sort of very exciting moment to see what might be an invisible community of global community of communities uh, using the ideas. And and that's maybe the point at which um, we really see what the potential there is, because I would never profess to knowing what the donut really truly looks like for communities, because I can't wait to be surprised by interpretations of it from all different cultures and worldviews and, and communities of people and 
place and mm. purpose. So a community, you know, how do you even define a community? Is it we have communities of purpose where they bring people together from multiple locations, or you have a community of place very rooted yes. uh, in, in that place and the history of that place. And communities of purpose have been growing online a lot during COVID. Mm-hmm. That's become a whole different level of connectivity. Jamie Wheel and his orders of magnitude of connectivity, it's mostly about communities of purpose, yeah. then feeding into yeah. communities of place. So you said you had something that was going to launch at the end of the month. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about what it is and what it does and how people might access it and what they might gain from accessing it. Yes. So this is, in a way, the launch of Donut Economics Action Lab. And we're launching, well, not only the organization, but we're, we're launching our kind of main experiment as part of this lab, which is an online collaborative platform for people who have come to the ideas of donut economics and want to do something about it. And it's for them to connect with each other and to share ideas and uh, stories of, of, of the use of donut economics in, in their context and their place. And um, to use tools uh, such as um, methodologies like how to create a city donut through to um, activities you could run in a community uh, or a, um, in a classroom. Right. And they're, they're explainers about the ins and outs of donut economics so you can, you know, you can get, up to, get up to speed with all the, 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 the sort of the essentials. And the, the, the real aim is that we are starting something. This is the kernel of something which will hopefully grow into a something we, you know, we, we in a way can't quite fully imagine what it could be yet. That's the point, really, isn't it? Yes. And that the community creates itself, starts monitoring itself and becomes this global community of people putting the ideas into action in all different kind of contexts. We mentioned the city and I'm doing, I'm leading on the communities, but also educators and businesses and national governments. We, we yes. didn't set out intentionally to attract the interests of national governments. But um, as mentioned, Costa Rica are, looking, you know, are doing it and other national governments are, are um, interested too. So we, yes. we have these broad themes, um, but also we're, we're so open to, to see how the community uh, starts arising, you know, what, what emerges yeah. um, from this distributed network of change makers putting the ideas yes. into action. Because this is the point, I think, of emergence from complex systems, as if you could mm. predict it from the start, it isn't real yeah. emergence. So what it yeah. feels to me like you're doing is setting up a complex system and then just right. kind of pressing the go button and wait and see yeah. what emerges. That'd be so exciting. It's so exciting. It, we're, we're, we're setting the, the, the platform up with a, a spirit of thinking in systems as though we, we don't know yeah. what, what, what properties will arise, but we're setting up with the intention of, of paying close attention and, uh, and learning right. and adapting, evolving, and, and, and that uh, the, yeah, the community emerges uh, from that. And so we will hopefully be able to re- respond as, as and when things This is action um, research change. on a very large <laughs> yes. scale, isn't it? <laughs> and have you got people doing dissertations on this? Have you got people who are going, whose job it is is to be monitoring bits, you know, angles of it and really exploring stuff? Because I'm imagining that if it takes off as it could take off, then very quickly it's going to become very, very big and very, mm. very complex and mm. ver- quite hard for one person to get their head around or mm. even a dozen people really to get their head around. Fantastic idea. We, One of our um, team members, um, Andrew Fanning, is uh, has done his PhD in 
um, the measurement of uh, the donut at a national level. And if um, your listeners want to explore that, you can go search um, online for Leeds, the city Leeds, L-E-E-D-S, Good Life, Leeds Good Life. And you can then look at any city around, any um, nation around the world and how it meets, uh, how it, how it um, currently scores on the, on, on the donut metrics. And Andrew is, um, is, is currently, and as we speak, creating the, the sort of the academic literature around the donut. But your question, I think, is, is, is fantastic. So the academic literature, literature that we will be then sharing on the platform. But yeah, the, uh, the call for people to, to sort of look at how this complex adaptive system of the global community of change makers coming around an idea, it's a fantastic idea. Hmm. I've just looked up Leeds Good Life, so I'll put that in the in the show notes for people as well, because I think quite a lot of people are going to want to follow this up. It feels so rich, as if this is the opening of a door that answers your question of how do we inspire people to change their narrative. And partly it's about talking to other people who are changing their narrative and then the collective amplification of the narrative mm. changes becomes the mm. narrative change in itself. I imagine it feels enormously exciting. Um, and I'm wondering, I, I listened to a podcast the other day with a young man called Mark Lakeman, who I hope to interview later, who was part... It's City Repair. City Repair. That's it. Yes. Yes, down here, cityrepair.org. And I'm thinking that if, if we brought the extraordinary dynamism of someone who basically just closed off an intersection and turned it into a village, village green... Um, in order to create social connectivity and that kind of action that's already happening. And he did it once, and there are now 700 of them across Portland. And I'm thinking mm. Portland is probably looking at the donut quite hard at the moment. Mm. So, um, and then if Portland can do it, you know, other cities in Oregon can do it. And then this is how we can. It certainly change. is. It certainly it's, is. It's genuinely very, very exciting. Yeah. And I have, in the process of writing this down, realized that Donut Economic yeah. Action Lab spells deal. Which feels really ironic to me because that's quite a an, a kind of old scale neoliberal concept. The concept of closing the deal. Yes. So um, bringing, it, <laughs> bringing it forward to this sounds very good. Well, you could also look at it as the Green New Deal. So much spoken about, but yes, yeah, so we we do go by the name Deal. Um, I guess I was explaining it longhand, but yeah, we day by day we refer to ourselves as Deal. You are Deal. That's cool. And I noticed also that you're quite involved with biomimicry or at least biomimicry 3.8 is one of the sponsors and i wondered if you had any insight into mm. how mm -hmm. biomimicry is being incorporated into this yes yeah, so biomimicry was a, a great thought partner in the in the methodology behind the city portrait and and i and i mentioned how when you downscale the the global donut to a a place uh, such as the city what what are the relevant ecological measures so hang on a second i think for people who aren't familiar tell us a bit about what biomimicry does and is and the thinking behind that and then how we can apply it mm, of course so biomimicry is um, pioneered by Janine um, Benyus, it, is, it takes the idea that um, nature offers us a lead in the design of, of various design challenges that we face. And um, it's so it's been used in in all kinds of technological innovations. Um, things like using spider, spider thread, spider webs as a as a concept because it's so much stronger. Right. It's got the it's it's orders of magnitude more powerful than high tensile steel of the same right. weight or something like that. Yeah, I will yeah. post, there's an extraordinary YouTube video 
about biomimicry and the ways that it's being incorporated in in kind of high technology stuff. So I will post that video on the show notes and people can find that. But if you can tell us then how it is being folded in to city-scale donut economics, that sounds really exciting. So the so the ideas of biomimicry are are taking nature as both mental and measure. It's saying in how do we learn from uh, nature and then how do we use that as our as our measure of of, of, of success and um, so that is that is how much might our wildland next door to our city sequester carbon and how do we how do we potentially have dashboards on buildings saying you know, I'm sequestering this much carbon or I'm capturing this much of the the sun's energy and and translating it into either uh, solar power or as food on the roof and and I'm and and having these kind of metrics to say that you know we are uh, we are matching uh, nature's wonderful life-giving capacity of what this place would be if, if we didn't have this city it's turning the city into circles and recognizing that cities were designed in straight lines and how we can actually bring more of the si- cyclical uh, nature back to into our design. Brilliant. One of the things that really struck me was this concept that the city can be designed, intentionally designed, to give more back to the ecosphere within which it resides than did the land on which it was built. And I'm guessing that if the land on which it was built was the Amazon forest, that would be really hard. But if the <laughs> land on which it was built was was kind of industrially farmed farmland, then then it would be almost trivially easy <laughs> because industrial mm. farmland is a catastrophe. But to be able to really nurture, create wildlife corridors, to, to realize that, I don't know, hedgehogs need a 10-acre um, territory, as uh, we discussed in a recent podcast with Mary Reno. And how would we... How would we make a city hedgehog friendly mm. and bee friendly and friendly for frogs? And yeah. and can we do that in ways that still meet the needs of the people in the city to live and have a thriving existence? And my experience of what happens when people engage with the living world is that it almost by the fact of that engagement enhances their lives. And so if that can be built in to the city. And I guess in most cases now, it's a retrofit because there are very few cities being built from scratch that I know of. You might know differently. And so what we're going to have to do is redesign our cities, our towns, even potentially our villages on all the scales in order to be able to do that. Does that sound like what's going to happen? It does, and it sounds like the most wonderful challenge because, as you say, it is in this process of of um, welcoming nature back and and designing with biomimicry in mind that I feel we begin to engage something between ourselves and within ourselves that is just part of the fabric of community and this yes. opportunity to to yeah, welcome back the hedgehogs will bring us to life. And I see it as a really important part of the community work within donor economics. Yeah, I feel that there's 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 no one right answer, and it's for for communities to find what they believe is right for their place. Yeah, 
And so there's there's always going to be a limit for what we can show uh, from a from a central platform of of what works. Um, but I think it's more kind of giving the permission for for people um, in all of the various diversity of contexts to to take on this challenge and recognize that by meeting nature's needs, we're ne- meeting our own in a beautiful way. So that yeah, that awaits to wait to see how that's happening. And in your distributive network, if somebody comes up and says that no. we've discovered the way to make our our town hedgehog friendly, then then everybody else will know it. You know, one person only yeah. needs to do it. It's fantastic. It's this sharing yeah. of ideas. Absolutely. And the increase in regenerative complexity feels mm. huge. Sorry, I interrupted. You were going to say something much more interesting. Well, not at all. I, I just, I wanted to, to cycle slightly back to your comment about Mark Lakeman. Um, and just generally around this this, this work, um, well, the work that he did inspired me. He has this quote I've just pulled up in front of me, which is, like a snail needs a shell, like a fox needs a den, like a bird needs a nest. Human beings need a sense of place, but not just a sense of place. They need a gathering place at every single scale of their community. Wow. And that quote for me captures so much of this comparison with with nature that we are by restoring nature in our cities we are restoring our own places at all scales of community whether it's in our gardens whether it's in our on our streets with a shared common place um uh, just around the corner in our local park or nature corridors or or larger gathering places now how do we welcome back in in nature and in the in doing so you know how are we then creating these gathering places which have of deep quality of, of yeah. sense of place and sense of place which will will bring about the the space that I mentioned before that that cultivate imagining and I think it's all wonderfully linked so at the community scale I'm so excited about how we it's kind of concentric rings of placemaking that kind of bring about I think uh d- communities that then thrive within the donor right yes Please do send me that that quote and I'll put it up on the website with the rest because that was so beautiful. Um, and yes, the sense of people, we don't even know what it is that we need, I think, at some level. I, at a very deep level, we absolutely know, but we've been educated out of the concept that we need these places. We need that sense of the fox's den or the bird's nest or this sense of community connectedness. I read something recently that someone had done a study in um, alpine villages that have been almost not touched by the Industrial Revolution, even in the 21st century. And the person who went there said, you could say of these people that they worked 16 hours a day, but you could also say they don't work at all because their life and their work are completely interchangeable. And what they do is they live and they connect and they build community. And in doing so, they meet all their needs. And and we have created lives and a world where work and home are separated and, and the work that we do may have no impact on the welfare of our home life at all. And that at mm. some level we need to begin to reverse that so that we understand the connectedness of our communities and our need for each other, whether they are communities of purpose or communities of place, and that maybe in the end we begin to bring all those together. I think the idea of you being community's lead, I am so envious, Rob, it sounds totally... (laughs) Just get up each morning and go, oh my goodness, how can we build the world differently? And how can we help people 
to unleash those parts of themselves that know what they need and that have been crushed by the disimagination machine of of kind of the well, neoliberal. Well, that's economy. it exactly, and, and that's why really I, I so um, pursued this <laughs> desire for a magic formula that it gave people a sense of agency towards that goal of of of, of combating this disimagination machine, giving themselves a sense of agency and cultivating their own uh, our own collective imagination. Yeah, because I feel the the potential is unlimited. So. Yes, I completely agree with all those things. Yay! So we're nearly at the end of our hour, and generally I think that us agreeing with each other is a really good place to stop. But actually what I'd really like is for people listening to have a sense of the agency that they can take. So clearly at the end of the month, you're opening the Donut Economics Action Lab, which sounds so exciting. And I imagine everyone listening to the podcast will want to go there and just explore. So we'll put a link there. But other than that, is there any one thing that ordinary individuals can do now to begin really to promote this sense of opening the world up, changing the narrative, and shifting us to a new economic model? Wow, that's a great question. Um, so obviously, first of all, would be join the Action Lab. So uh, it's we don't ask for anything for, for you to join. It's not like uh, there's fee and we don't take any of your data. Just jump on and start having a, a look around. Um, and a good place to start is by by having a, a, a read and a watch of some of the videos and the material that you can see there just to get a grasp of some of the, the ideas of donor economics. Um, but I would say one of the best things you can do is just having a conversation. And I think what, one of the wonderful things about Brazil is that they're showing us what a really great book club looks like. They're, they're gathering around the ideas. And as part of Don't Economics, there are seven ways to think like a 21st century economist or just seven ways to think, you could yes. say, um, and and sort of discussing what that means for their place. I think it's a really good way to start because the the, the book is doesn't offer any declaratory statements on on what the answer is. It, it, it masks more questions. And I think opening a space, uh, you can maybe create a book club online or something like that, yeah. uh, where you're opening spaces to discuss those amongst your community of place or purpose, whether it's within a church or whether it's within a I don't know, uh, uh, a climate movement or yeah. whether it's um, a, a, a local community um, to discuss what that might mean for you. And I think that's a, a wonderful place to start. I think it's together and collectively where we have our greatest power. So so starting those conversations would be would be my recommendation. Fantastic. Thank you so much. This has been such an inspiring conversation. I will put links to everything in the show notes, to the Action Lab, to the book, to the C40 cities and biomimicry and circle economy and anything else that we can think of between us that people might want as resources because this is how we make the difference, people. Along with the spiritual work that we're doing, we can also make real, practical changes now by asking these questions in our communities. And I think we need we need both arms of this if we're going to create that sense of emergence from complexity that we so badly need. So, Rob, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. So that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Rob for his music and for the enthusiasm and integrity and inspiration that he is bringing to modern economic thinking and to the world. 
if all of our cities and our towns and our villages, if the whole of our way of structuring our economy were to be based around the donut economic model, where there is enough for everybody's need within the limits of the living planet, we would be in an entirely different world with an entirely different focus. And if each of us were to understand how this works, how we can make it work within our own worlds, then we would be on the way to making this happen. So do head over to the Donut Economics Action Lab. I will put the link in the show notes and see what you can do to help to bring this kind of thinking, this awareness of the ways that money works into every part of your world. We will be back next week with another conversation. And if you have any ideas of people you would like to hear on the podcast, you will find me at manda at accidentalgods.life. Drop me an email. Let's have a conversation. In the meantime, thanks as ever to Caro C for the music at the head and foot of the podcast and for the sound production. Thanks to Faith Tilleray for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods and for designing the website. If you want to visit us there, we are at accidentalgods.life. You'll find the show notes there, the other podcasts, the visualizations and meditations in the resources section, and access to the Accidental Gods membership program, which is designed to fill in all of the ways that you can connect to the more than human world, so that when we take our economic model and enfold it within the means of the living planet, we have a way of connecting to that living planet to work out what its means are and what it needs from us. So if you know of anybody else who would like to be part of this generative, beautiful, new configuration of the world, do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.